Praise the Lord. Welcome, 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 welcome. Unsafe places. This is week 10. Can you believe week 10 of our series that we are going verse by verse, line by line through the book of James. James happens to be my favorite book of the Bible. If you're new here, uh, this is our 10th week. We are on our way toward the uh, end of this book. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in chapter 4 this week of this uh, great book. And uh, just a little backdrop, Jesus had a little brother, actually had more than one little brother, but he had one particular little brother who did not believe in him. His name was James. He grew up with him that maybe they shared uh, bunk beds, maybe they played games together and skinned knees together and got in fist fights when they were little boys. But all the way growing up, James did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And it was only after Jesus died, resurrected, and came back from the dead and showed himself specifically to his little brother that James believed in him, became one of the early pastors of the church, and wrote this letter. This letter may have very well been the first version of the Bible that the church passed around because James is giving us instructions and that's why I love this book so much because it's just instructions on how to practically live as a Christian. He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat a lot. He gets right to the point. He kind of gets in our face. And by the way, if you have enjoyed this study through the book of James, just a little heads up. Beginning this week, it gets a lot tougher and from chapter 4 through the end of chapter 5, James just kind of cuts to the chase and sort of tells us about ourselves. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk in James chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And he gets right to, I think, one of the most pertinent messages of this day that we live in. Verse 1 says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at work? Within you, stop right there. Where did he say they come from? Within you. You mean it's not Washington? You, you mean it's not the Democrats' fault? It's not the Republicans' fault? It, James says that the evil desires cause war in you. You're to blame for your problems? No, he can't say that. No, this is 2022. We're all victims. Somebody else is to blame for my problems. It's not my fault. Verse 2 says, you want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Does that, does that sound like 2022? Does anybody? This, this, uh -huh. um, yet you don't have what you want. Because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. The King James Version there says, you ask amiss. Well, that sounded a little bit uh, too friendly to me. I wanted to get in your face a little bit. He says, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Verse 4, pretty strong language. You adulterers don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God I say it again if you want to be a friend of the world you make yourself an enemy of God do you think that the scriptures have no meaning they say that God is passionate and that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him Wow Nobody preaches this stuff anymore. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, verse 7, before God. Resist the devil. Don't assist the devil. Resist the devil and he will what? What? Flee. He'll run away from you. We spend most of our preaching, we spend most of our teaching, we spend most of our worship songs teaching people to run away from the devil, but the Bible says if you get yourself positioned right, he'll run away from you. See, we've got this thing twisted up too much because there's, there's, there's this something in the church that has made us convinced that he is more powerful than we are and that we need to run away from him, but that's because our positioning ain't right. 
The Bible says if I draw close to God, in verse 8, God will come close to me. So if I position myself right, I don't have to worry about Him because He knows something that you don't know. You, with the anointing of God on you, are more powerful than He is. And He should not be having His foot on your neck because He's supposed to be under your feet. Somebody give the Lord a hand clap right there. That's, that's worth your price of admission. And about verse, says, verse 8 goes on to say, Wash your hands, you sinners. You want to get positioned right. If you want the devil to flee from you, wash your hands, you sinners. I didn't say it. You're going to have to take this up with James when you get to heaven. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Uh. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Ain't you glad you came to church this morning and pastor done called you adulterers, sinners, and told you to start crying? Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up and honor. So he starts out this passage with a question. He says, what causes quarrels and fights amongst you? He says, what's causing you to be so upset? Now, anybody that is living in the same arena, I guess, reality is another way to put it, that I am, I think we probably all ask ourselves this question, don't we, from time to time? What am I so upset for? If you don't ask it about yourself, do you ever ask it about your coworkers? Do you ever ask it about the person that cut you off in Walmart's parking lot? And they're laying on the horn, they've got a horn ministry, and they've got a bird in the car that they wanted to show you? Do you ever look at them and say, what are you so upset about? Like, what has got you so bent out of shape that you feel like you could murder me because my car was where you wanted your car to be? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody have any conflict? Don't raise your hands. Gentlemen, do not look around. Does anybody have any conflict in their marriages? Do you know what that's like? Do you ever wonder, what has got you so upset? you ever ask, why is there so much conflict out there? But what James says is that there's not conflict out there unless there's first conflict in here. And here's what he shows us or what he's going to show us, there are three areas of conflict in our life. Ready? Conflict with others, conflict with ourselves, conflict with God. These are the three areas where you're going to find conflict in this world. Conflict with others, conflict with yourself, and conflict with God. And we have conflict with others because we first have conflict on the inside of us. If you're not right with you, you're not, you don't stand much of a chance to be right with me. And, and as we progress through this message, that's going to become abundantly clear because James, James gets in our face here. Look what he says in verse 1. What causes quarrels or fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your evil desires that are inside of you? See, no matter how angry you get with me, I didn't put nothing in you. Some of you are still angry with a, 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 a father, an uncle, someone who abused you, someone who hurt you, a mother who abandoned you, someone who neglected you, someone who molested you, and I'm not diminishing your pain, but the fact remains is they're dead and gone, some of them, and you're still carrying the pain around as it is, if it is real as if they just did it. And what they did to you was wrong, but what you allowed it to do to you today is your fault. Because they did things to you, but they did not put something in you. The quarrel and the war that you have is because you've got this problem that you need to deal with. And by the way, until you settle that thing inside of you, no matter if they come back and apologize or not, it won't help. Because the war and the battle is inside of you. So that's what James is going to point out to us. He says the conflict is inside. Now, conflict starts early in life. How many of you have found out that if there's a baby around, that baby, if their need is not being satisfied, they let everybody know? Yeah, yeah, because you don't have to be taught to be selfish. From, from birth, you are a selfish 
being. And you can argue even if you don't know how to talk. Oh, don't look at me in that tone of voice. Every married person in this room knows that you can argue without saying a word. You passive aggressively. Somebody, they ask you to pass the salt. They didn't ask you to pass it at their head. What's wrong with you? Nothing. Now, you ain't saying nothing, but you're saying a whole lot. Uh, because you can argue, you can show yourself, you show your attitude. My wife tells me that I don't hide nothing because I wear my attitude on my face. She says, when you walk into a room, you demonstrate to everybody in the room exactly what's on your mind. I don't know how to make my face be fake. Like everybody has that telephone voice, you know what I'm talking about. Like if you're talking to your mom, you're talking to your kids, you're talking to your husband or your wife, you're like, yeah, all right, okay, bye. But if you don't know who it is, you, you answer the phone, you're like, hello? Uh, yes, this is he. Who is this? Oh, okay, yes, I can make that appointment very well. Thank you. Cheerio. I'm not even British, but cheerio. I don't know where I come. Everybody's got that fake telephone voice. I know how to disguise my voice. I don't know how to fake my face. Like I've been able to fake a whole lot of stuff, but I can't fake my face. I walk into a room. If it's all in chaos and disarray and it ain't the way I left it, I walk in, it jumps out. And, and, and so James says that this stuff that's happening outside is because it first has this war going on inside. So let's talk about marriage. Because we're going to talk about war, we got to get down to the basis. Marriage has a built-in conflict. Oh, you got quiet. Think about the things that before you got married, you thought about your spouse. That was not the reality once you got married. You know, you were really idealistic before you got married. Oh, they're going to wake up every day and she's going to cook me breakfast in bed. And she's going to rub my feet before we go to bed at night. And then she's going to meet me at the door after work all day with a rose between her teeth and a pot roast in the oven. And she's going to look splendid. Oh, and he's going to carry that six-pack ab all the way through to the grave. He's going to have this long, luscious head of hair. He's always going to be a, 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 a man's man and can fix anything and can, can mow the lawn in three seconds and sweep me off of my feet to romantic getaways. You had all kinds of ideas. How'd that work out for you? All marriages go through three stages. You ready for this? Stage one, happy honeymoon. Stage two, the party's over. Stage three, let's make a deal. From your applause, I can tell where most of you are today. <laughs> okay. But every stage, you have to learn how to handle conflict because it's sure to come. You stand in front of them, that judge, that, that pastor, that justice of the peace, and you say, I do, and everything's lovely that day. Take a picture. Remember it. That's the last day. The mold gets broke after that day, and it'll never look the same again. Amen. So, so when we think about conflict or you think about when you think about the enemy, okay, some of you as old as I am are older. Some of you, before Christ, before you were holy, before you spoke in tongues, some of you watched movies like I did when I was little. Does anybody remember movies like The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby? These are my people. Now, when we talk about the devil and we th talk about the kingdom of darkness, you think about movies like that. Like folks' heads are spinning around and there's vomit going all over the place and levitation off of the bed. That's the image that we have when we think about the enemy and the kingdom of darkness. But you know what James just said? James says, actually, troubles are not demonic. Troubles are relationships. It's not even the devil's fault. It's us putting the devil on one another. Oh, that's good preaching, preacher. See, we blame the devil. Well, my marriage, the devil's attacking my marriage. Is it really the devil or is it the fact that you won't go home? 
Is it really the devil or is it the fact that, that you have been disagreeable for the past month because they said something that you never told them that they did and you've expected them to apologize over something they didn't know they did that they were doing and you've been holding a grudge like a bulldog holds a bone? Is that really the issue or is it the devil? Because James says our problems don't come from hell. It comes from us putting hell on one another. So it's, it's not the enemy showing up with flashing lights and bolts of thunder. See, God made us to have relationship with Him and to have relationship with one another. So the devil shows up and tries to cause chaos and conflict. And so then he asks this question, what causes these fights and quarrels? And I know this is an old book. It's about 2,000 years old, and, and some of the things in it seem a little bit outdated. So let me ask you, true or false, we still have quarrels and conflict in this world. True. As a matter of fact, <laughs> oh yeah, we plugged our troubles and our quarrels into the internet and now, <laughs> now we have it in high definition. And now not only are our troubles and our quarrels in our house, but they're global. And we can share them with everybody. So what often happens is you get frustrated and you get annoyed and somebody's gotten on your last nerve and you are sick of them and you are done with them and we're asked this question, what's wrong? And immediately, wifey, immediately, hubby, you start giving a recital about everything they done. Or you get on the internet and you say, it's the Democrats. Or you get on the, you, it's the anti-masker, it's the vaccine people. And you, you get, you start dumping on what's wrong in the world, it's always them. Or it's them. Or it's that group. Or it's those people. James says before you start dump trucking what's wrong with everybody else out there, first examine what you've got going on in here. Because this is the source of your quarrels. And he doesn't even allow you. Notice this. He asks the question, and he's like you parents with your kids. You ever, ask, you ever walk in a room and say, what's going on in here? And then you don't wait for the answer. Because it's very obvious. One of them's got a handful of the other one's hair. The other one has got the arm and the mouth. It's very obvious. You really didn't ask them to, for information. You just wanted to make an example of them. James says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? And then he don't even let you answer. He tells you the answer. He says, it's your fault. You've got evil desires on the inside of you. So, what's happening out there isn't as important as what's happening in here. Will you say amen with me so I know I'm in the right place? Okay, so what desires is James talking about? I'm going to use three this morning, okay? Three evil desires that causes conflict on the inside of you. Number one, the desire for more. Uh-huh. When you have unrealized desires, you have conflict. And when you have conflict inside of you, it causes other people to rub you the wrong way, and then you start putting conflict on them. We want more. We are living in a materialistic society. Listen to how James puts it. You want what you don't have, so you scheme to get it. He says, you want some stuff that other people have, other folks has got it, and you don't? So we want materialistic things. He says, you, you want what you don't have. You long for what others have. And if you don't believe me, wait for Apple to drop a new phone. People camping out on sidewalks to buy a phone? I ain't never seen the likes of such. I wouldn't camp out on the sidewalk if they was giving away cheeseburgers. I just make my own cheeseburger. Listen, you can get that same phone a week later and don't have to stand in the rain to get it. And you just walk into the store, order it offline, whatever. Some people want to be the very first. That shows you what kind of society we live in. By the way, the phone they have in their pocket works just fine. But, but they have to be first and they have to have it the best and they want to show it off and they got to put it on the gram and they got to post it and they've got to get likes and they got to get... They got to embellish their life so other people will look at them and say, Oh, you're so pretty. Everybody on social media breaks at least one Ten Commandment every time they post. Because one of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not lie. Come on now. You know, we do not see the raw, honest truth on social media. I've never seen this post not once. Hey, look at me. I gained 30 pounds. Nuh-uh. No, no, no. Lose the 30. You got pictures galore coming. 
But you never see somebody else on the other end going, yeah, I found them. Click. No, no, no. We don't post that. <laughs> somebody, what they do, what we do post, hey, look at my kids. They're perfect. No, they're not. You gave them Benadryl. You screamed at him until your horse was until your voice was hoarse, and the woman that was taking the picture was about to call CPS on you. And you eventually bribed him with toys and chicken nuggets just to sit there long enough to take that picture. We all know that ain't your family. That is your fake phony Christmas card that you almost killed and sacrificed one of your children as an example to the other ones just to put that thing on Facebook. We all know you're lying. And James says that there's something flawed in here. We want things that we don't have. And when we see somebody else has it, we want it. Be careful what you ask for. If you're single, be careful. Because you look over and say, oh, I want to be married. Just married? Because there's a lot of versions to being married. There's happily married. There's barely married. <laughs> Married people see little Ezra, and they, oh, I want a baby. I feel my biological clock ticking. Well, you might as well get used to that clock ticking because that's all you're going to hear for the next nine months because that's the last sleep you're going to get if you have one. I mean, they look beautiful on Facebook. Charity does not take pictures at 3 a.m. with that baby vomited all over her shirt and her falling asleep. No, 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 she takes pictures of it smiling. Everybody's like, oh, I want, I want a baby. You want the whole baby or you just want visitation? Because visitation is sweet. I'm about to be a grandparent. I'm going to get to visit babies, give them back for the 3 a.m. feedings. Glory, hallelujah. <laughs> so James says, James says, here's your problem. You want what other people have, and instead of doing what you need to do, you covet and you're jealous of them, when really what you should do is ask God. He says you have not because you ask not. And this is what we do. We get jealous of what other people have, and we don't ask God to provide it. Instead, look what he says. You scheme trying to take it from somebody else instead of going to your father. Now, let me, let me share something with you. i got one of my kids sitting right here on the front row. I'm a father. I got three children, ages of 28 to 15. I love them all. I die for any of them. You mess with them, you're going to see the B.C. bishop. I, 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 I make no quarrels about that. These are my babies. God gave them to me to steward. I'll take care of them the best I can. But my older two, they look at the way I answer questions today, and they say, who is this man? Because when we were little, you said no all the time. And they, that's right, Jared says. Amen from this section over here. They said, when we were little, you said no all the time. Now you say yes. It's not me that changed. Your questions used to be dumb. <laughs> See, now that he's grown up a little bit, him and his, him and his sister, they ask better questions. Because when they were young, they would ask me questions that I knew if I said yes to, I was giving them permission to do stuff that I knew was going to hurt them, cause them some kind of harm. So their questions got better. And when they're, now when they come to me and they say something, it's a reasonable expectation because life has kicked them around a little bit. And they realize that the stuff they used to think was the end of the world really don't matter that much. And they come to me now and ask me questions, and I'm like, yes, that's a reasonable request. Why, yes, I'll do that. It's not me that got softer. It's your questions used to be done. So sometimes a kid asks you something you have to say no, not because you don't love them, but because you do. And you know that if you give them what they're asking for, because you have wisdom that they have not yet obtained, you know what they're asking for is not good for them. And it's the same way with God. So we go to God and we ask God for something that somebody else has, and he says no. And then we think, well, we need to steal it from somebody else. But you don't know that the reason God said no is because it's not good. It may be good for them. It may be a blessing to them. But it won't look right on you. Uh huh. So 
He says, in addition, you are receiving things from God, but you're wasting them on foolish passions and desires. We go to God and we say, God, I need more money. God says, I gave you plenty of money. You misspent it. <laughs> he said, you didn't tithe with it. You spent it on a phone when, instead of your phone bill. <laughs> I was talking to somebody that just got an upgrade and bought a new phone and then needed money to pay their phone bill. I said, did your old phone work on the old bill? Yeah. You should have kept it. <laughs> but God, God's uh, word in, in, in the four Gospels, Jesus preaches, and 25% of what Jesus talked about, one-fourth of his messages was about stewardship. And it wasn't just about money. It was about, I'm, I'm going to give you a, this amount of money. I expect you to do something wise with it. I'm going to give you this much time. I expect you to do something wise with it. I'm going to give you this many resources. I expect you to do something wise with it. It's all about resources. Jesus tells us, you've only got so much of everything, so many days on this earth, so many moments, so many purposes. And, and if I give them to you, I don't expect you to squander them. I expect you to use them. But the desire for more gets in the way. Number two, the desire to feel good verse 3 he says you only want what will give you pleasure you only want what will give you pleasure he says the conflict you got in here is because you want stuff that makes you feel good <laughs> and sometimes what God wants you to have doesn't make you feel good sometimes God brings you through the valley of the shadow of death and it don't feel good Sometimes God brings you through trials and temptations, and yes, you get victory on the other side, but I promise you it does not feel good while you're going through it. So I showed you this slide on week three that I created, and I'm going to show it to you again. We all start out with our wants. These are our desires, right? And if you, whatever you want becomes what you talk yourself into. You convince yourself that it's what you want, what you deserve, what you... Hey, don't, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever said something like, I deserve this? Oh, it got quiet all of a sudden in this mortuary. Did you hear that? I deserve that. I deserve to be happy. I'm going to leave him. I deserve to be... I'm going to... Nobody is treating me right now at work. I deserve... That's, that's, that's where you're at. You're on, you're on step two. You're talking yourself into stuff. And it is amazing what you can talk yourself into. So you start out with desires and wants. Move to convincing yourself. Then you start obsessing over it. You start talking to yourself constantly. And you become carnal minded. Because once you start talking yourself into it, you'll forget what the word says. And you will actually twist the word to agree with your carnal thinking. Everything below the line causes what happens above the line to happen. You robbed a bank. That's an act. You killed somebody. That's an act. You stole something. That's an act. You wound up in the wrong bedroom. That's an act. But none of it just happened. Sin is not a pothole in the road that you accidentally fell into. When you acted, it, you only acted because you had first ha did everything below the line. Everything below the line caused everything to happen above the line. So you, what, Paul, what James is getting at is you have to arrest your desires. You have to figure out that you want things that your father doesn't want you to have. He says you ask and then you ask amiss. You ask out of your carnal desires, things that I don't want you to have. And then when you don't get them, you start trying to figure out how you can get them from somebody else, which causes the action in your life. Are you still tracking me? This leads us to our third problem, and this one is Burger King Christianity. I want it my way. I want life my way. I want this relationship my way. And by the way, you will start at this level to start massaging and adjusting your relationship with God. Let me give you an example because some of you don't believe me. Let me tell you how marriage works in the kingdom. 
This August, I will be married to Pastor Amanda for 29 years. Now, yeah, okay. Some of you got a lot longer than that. We're on year 29. And I love her with my whole heart. She is my best friend. Our marriage is what the Bible calls a covenant. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but that means it's unique. It's special. It's sacred. I don't have another relationship like this one. For those of you that are new, I, I describe it like this. All of you who appreciate me love me on some level, but all love ain't the same. This woman has a relationship with me, and I have a relationship with all of you. But she's the only person in here that's going to wash my dirty socks. When you say, Pastor, I love you. You go on my Facebook page. I, I love that you give me so much encouragement. I appreciate it. I really do. I really do. And I love you too. But I don't love you enough to wash your dirty socks. Like, I love you enough to pray for you. I love you enough to, to speak blessing over you. I, I love you enough to drive devils out of you. But I don't love you enough to wash your dirty socks. And you don't love me that much either. There's one woman in this room that has that kind of affection for me. And if you, and if you say, oh, no, I would. Come on up here after service after I've done sweated all through this. And I'll test your love for Bishop this morning. Now, so I have a unique relationship with her. And the whole reason that I wear a wedding ring is to show everybody that I'm in a unique covenantal relationship with one girl and I don't have another relationship like it. That's why I don't have ten rings on. I didn't get married ten times. I got married one time. You can only do that once at a time. I know some of you have been married more than one time, but never more than once at the same time unless some of y'all are from Utah. And I got some questions after service. So that's supposed to be, when you get married, it's supposed to be sacred. Can somebody say amen? It's supposed to be intimate. It's supposed to be safe and guarded and protected. And if I wander outside of that relationship, it's this word James uses, adultery. Okay? So the Bible says Jesus Christ is our groom. We, as the church, are his bride. And what God wants from you is a relationship that is sacred, full of fidelity and unity and harmony and loyalty. And there's the problem. There's a lot of people who want to come to church, but they don't want to get married to Jesus. Oh, I'm just going to go ahead and drop a ball because a lot of people want one-night stands with the Holy Ghost. And they want Jesus as a roommate who pays all their bills, but they don't want to have a relationship with him. They don't want to enter into covenant with him because they know that as soon as they take a covenant with him, it means they can't go cheating on everybody else that comes along in their life. Do you see why I named this series Unsafe Places? Because this is not something you'll hear out there. Out there they tell you, YOLO! Chase whatever feels good. Have life your way. Whatever it feels. This is called hedonism, by the way. Whatever you feel like, you ought to pursue it. You want to smoke it, smoke it. You want to drink it, drink it. You want to sleep with them, sleep with them. Whatever makes you feel good, you do you, boo. This is hedonism. And that's what the world is teaching. If it feels good, you want your life, you do it your way. But Jesus Christ said, if you want a relationship with me, you're going to have to cut yourself off from all of that noise because I'm not going to have an affair with you. He says, if you want me, you're going to be sold out to me. How many of you know that if I brought home three or four women a week and set them down on the couch beside of me with my arm around them, it probably caused some conflict in my house? I mean, I got the ring on, baby. I mean, I can keep... I, I can wear the ring, and I still love you. Like, I didn't kick you out of the house. I'm just going to take them on some dates, and, you know, we're just going to watch a movie. How many of you know that Pastor Amanda's going to be like, okay, y'all have a nice evening? That's probably not going to be the result. She's going to go, she's going to go Old Testament on Pastor. Fire and brimstone's coming down. Pretty quickly, I think, on those decisions I'm making. She, she, there's probably going to be some flipping over some tables and a whip running me out of the temple. And 
So, 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 so listen, just because I wear the ring and just because I don't kick her out of the house doesn't mean that I'm being sacred in my relationship. Just because you don't kick Jesus out of your house, just because you don't quit coming to church doesn't mean you're being sacred with your marriage vows. God doesn't do adulterous. He only does covenant. So God has high expectations. We don't know what love is. He does. Love is exclusive. Love is devoted. It's committed and it is sacred. So God doesn't do strange relationships. He doesn't do add-ons. He only does marriage. And listen to what it says. You're either a friend of God and an enemy of the world or you're an enemy of God and a friend of the world. So there's a lot of people sitting in churches today that live their whole life and they're technically married to God. But they're not committed to Him. Let me just let you behind the door of a marriage counselor. I've done it a lot for a lot of years. And there's one thing that I've always found out. If one of them don't want to make it work, it won't work. It takes two people and the Lord to put something back together. If I have two committed people and we get God involved in it, there's no doubt in my mind it will work. But if one of them checks out and no longer loves them and no longer wants it to work, no amount of counseling, no amount of, no amount of uh, 12 steps, no amount of programs is going to help them if they don't want to be married. However, I've met people who don't want to be married anymore, but they also don't want to be responsible for the divorce. Ooh, it got quiet. And if they don't fall in love, they're going to try to fake it until they make it. But you can only stay out of duty for so long. Can I tell you that Better or worse is what you said when you got married. But it takes on a whole new meaning when worse shows up. Sickness and health sounds cute when you say it. But when sickness shows up, it means a whole other thing. When, when you have to stay there and deal with sickness, you find out what you said when you said it. So not everybody that comes to church is in church because they love Jesus. Some are there because they have pressure on them from their family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get down to something. Listen, y'all getting quiet on me means that, means that I'm hitting somebody. Some people are in church because they feel pressure from their family to be in church. Some people are in church because they need help and they're looking for help. Some people are in church, don't hear what I'm not saying, because they're afraid of going to hell. My question to you is, how different would this room look if there was no consequences to your actions? I don't care if I preach it anymore. I don't care if I, I, don't care if I stop right here if, if you get this one point. How different would your relationship with Christ look if you knew that there was no consequences for the way you choose? What kind of mess would you be chasing today? If you knew God wouldn't get upset with you. This shows the depravity of your heart. This shows why you need regeneration from the Holy Ghost. Because when you really start thinking about how depraved you would be, my God, there's hardly no limitation on the human heart. What kind of relationships would you be would you be uh, accepting today? Hey, you, some of you would be in 15, 20 relationships right now. And I'm not, I'm not casting dispersions on you. I'm just telling the truth. And some of you know I am. Some of you would be in all kinds of sexual perversion. Some of you would be addicts today. Some of you would be dead today because you would follow the lust of your heart. If you weren't afraid of consequences, if you weren't afraid that you would miss heaven and inherit hell, this room would look drastically different today. But I, what I want and what James wants is for you to stop thinking about the consequences and fall so madly in love with Jesus that you no longer desire those things. Because, I, listen, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I know we kid and we joke and stuff about, about divorce, but, okay, I'm not afraid of that woman. 
I mean, unless I'm asleep. I got 100 pounds on her. I'm not afraid of her. If I don't, I don't resist other women because I'm afraid of a frying pan. I just wouldn't come home. <laughs> if I had another woman, I'd just go with that other woman and call her on the phone. I would be afraid if I had to face her in the house near the knife drawer. <laughs> but I don't, I don't resist cheating because I'm afraid of her. I resist cheating because I honor her, because I love her, because I respect her, because I made a covenant with her. That's why I'm loyal to her. And some of us are, have not yet gotten into that relationship with our Father because the only reason we serve Him is out of fear and out of, uh, because we're afraid of restitution if we go sideways. But I don't want that. James don't want that. He says, I want you to be so in love with Him that you don't want to hurt Him. That, that your heart gets regeneration. That this Holy Spirit comes in you and does a supernatural work and changes your desires. I'm standing here telling you today, I can do anything I want to, but because of the Holy Ghost that lives in me, my want-tos have changed. I no longer want what I used to want. There are some things I used to talk about that embarrass me now. There are some things that I used to desire that, I, that grosses me out now because my whole life has changed. So church, my question to you this morning is, I know you need him, but do you love him? A wife that doesn't want to get divorced because she needs her husband's paycheck, but she don't love him anymore, is, is in for a long relationship. And I don't want you just needing God. I want you to love him. I want you to love him as your heavenly father who wants nothing but good things for you. Can somebody say praise the Lord this morning? Amen. So I'm, I'm about to wrap this up. I'm going to skip ahead. Here's what James says in verse 5. He says, God is jealous. And he says he's jealous of your spirit and your soul. That's the most intimate part of you. That's the part down deep. And the Bible says God is jealous. So, so my question is this. Because the Bible says jealousy is as cruel as the grave. The Bible also says that it's a sin to be jealous. So is jealousy good or is it bad? Yes. It depends on who has it. And for what reason? See, you can have a jealous, overbearing, controlling husband or boyfriend, and that's bad jealousy. But God says, I am jealous for your inward parts, your soul. Because God says, I'm not going to share you with anything else. I'm not going to split time with the world for your affection. How many of you grew up in a in a conventional home where your dad sat at the head of the table at dinner time. Anybody, anybody besides me? Okay. Did you notice that the family didn't vote that that's where he was going to sit? That was just his seat, right? Did he have a seat in the living room too? Usually the recliner with the best view of the TV? And nobody, y'all never had no family meeting about it, did you? I said, we're, we're, we're all going to vote on whether dad can sit here. He just kind of took it because that was his spot. That's his seat. Now imagine some night dad gets his plate and comes to the table. And there's another fella sitting there. And he looks at his wife and says, who's this guy? She says, well, in addition to you, I have five or six other suitors. And, and, and you can still sit at the table and eat, but we're going to rotate around, and you'll get that seat every six weeks, or every six nights. And, and I have some other people that I care about, and I appreciate, and I want to spend time with. How many of you know that that man is going to be jealous? At the very least, he's probably going to be in prison real quick. Um, but he's, he's, he's going to be, right, jealous, right? 
very, very, very jealous. And he would be justified by being jealous. Because they have a sacred relationship and she doesn't have a right giving that position to another man. So jealousy is not always a bad thing because it depends on who has it and for what reason. And God feels jealous over every single one of you every single day. God looks at you and says, I made you. How come I'm not enough? God says, why am I not your first commitment every day? I know you came to church today. Why do you have somebody else sitting in my spot? I made the table. I prepared the food. I've been good to you. I think about you continuously. Why is somebody else sitting in my spot? Why do I have to compete with another relationship? Why are you dating an unbeliever? You can't even invite me into the relationship and I'm supposed to be your first priority? Why do I have to compete with him? Why do I have to compete with your attitude? Why do I have to compete with an addiction? Why do I have to compete with your goals that you set for your life? that contradict what I want for your life. Why am I not enough for you? Every day, God is jealous over every person under the sound of my voice. He gets jealous when anybody takes the seat at the head of the table of your life. The Bible says, why am I not enough? James says God ought to be enough. He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. God said, if, if you'll just stop trying to do this thing yourself, I've got a better plan for you. And here's what James teaches us. It's never too late to make it right until it's too late. He resists the proud. When you are too prideful to bend your knee to Jesus, he resists the proud. Can I tell you, he's undefeated. You're picking a fight with somebody that's never lost a battle. <laughs> probably not smart. You, you should probably consider your ways. So I want to ask this morning before before we leave I want to ask if there's anything in your life anything in your heart anything in your mind anything in your plans that you have put ahead of God is there anything that you know God's not pleased with what do you do when the lights are out and everybody's in the bed and it's just you what does God know about you that nobody else knows about you? The secrets that you keep from pastor and hubby and wifey and kids and mommy and daddy, those secrets are known to him. What does he know about you that you are embarrassed about? What does he know about you that you pray that nobody else ever finds out about you? What does God have to do to become first in your life? Do you want a career more than you want Him? Do you want an education more than you want Him? Do you want another relationship with another human being, somebody you can touch and FaceTime with? Do you want that more than you want Him? What is it standing between you and Him? James says, whatever it is, God is resisting that. He resists the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. You know what grace is? Grace is supernatural ability for you to change. So He gives grace to the humble. 
That is supernatural. You can't change yourself. How many of you, how many of you, I'm going to go ahead and put you on the spot. How many of you have got something in your life you want to change and you've tried to change and found out you couldn't change it? I can't change the way I think. I can't change my weight. I can't change my, 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 my mindset. I've tried and I've tried. I've tried not to be depressed. I've tried to get rid of anxiety. I've tried, I've tried, and it hasn't worked. That's because you can't do those kind of changes. Those kind of changes takes a supernatural empowerment, and that's what grace is. It is the ability from heaven to overcome the problems in your life. And he says, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you are humble enough to say, I have a problem, I have a need that only Jesus can fix, if you are humble enough to say, yes, I need something from the Lord this morning, he gives grace. Grace is the supernatural ability to overcome the thing that you drug in here, and you drug it in here last week, and last month, and last year, and you keep trying to deal with it with counseling, you keep trying to educate yourself, you keep trying to discipline yourself, and it none of it is working because heaven needs to get involved and that's what he wants to do this morning heaven wants to get involved in your mess this morning are you humble enough to bring it to the Lord because he said if you'll bring it to me if you'll bring it to my house if you'll bring it to my cross if you'll bring it to my anointing I will break the yoke that has been on your neck and has been devastating your life and has been causing you to cry yourself to sleep at night I will change it if you're humble enough to bring it to me. So if you're humble enough to bring your problems, I have, a, I have something that, Pastor, I've got to get rid of it. I have had this in my life for so long, I don't even know how I'm going to live without it, but it's standing between me and the Lord, and I know He ain't happy with it. I'm going to bring it. If you're humble enough, get up out of your seat and bring it to the altar this morning. If you're humble enough... He says, I'm going to give grace to the humble. I'm going to resist the proud. So if you're going to sit there with your arms folded and say, not me, not me, not me, know that you are fighting a battle. You are not going to win because he resists the proud. But if you're humble enough to say, I've got to get rid of this thing, come to this altar this morning. Bring it to the Father's house.